When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's a light on the hill from a bush that's burning. And it's Welcome back to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and we are back with part two of my conversation with Dr. Dan McClellan. Uh, really, really fun. Uh, as I said, uh, brilliant guy who, you know, speaks and, and reads uh, a number of languages and, um, you know, just was super, super fun to talk to her and super gracious. Um, I, I was having a ton of technical issues, which is unusual. I've gotten those ironed out over seven years, but for whatever reason, uh, my soundboard decided not to work, uh, you know, properly that particular day, but he, uh, he was patient with me and I appreciate that to no end. And, uh, we, we got the interview done and had to do some editing, but some finagling, but we, we, we made it happen. But, um, hopefully, uh, you enjoyed this. And uh, again, this is part two. So if you haven't heard part one yet, pause, go back, listen to last week's episode. Uh, but otherwise, enjoy part two. This is a conclusion of my conversation with Dr. Dan McClellan. And uh, as always, www.thedeconstructionist.com is the one-stop shop for everything uh, that we do here. So uh, website uh, has uh, our blog, has our web store, has our link to our Patreon if you want to support us there. Uh, it's got um, all the entire back catalog of our episodes for free that you can stream directly through the sites. Um, yeah, that's all the good stuff, right? Okay, we'll get to it. Without further ado, give you part two with Dan freaking McClellan. But I think it's calling to me. I think it's calling to me. Yeah, the podcast is definitely something I'm really excited about. You get to give a little bit more uh, long-form answers. So tell people a little bit about that. What's the name of the podcast? Yeah, so our podcast is called the Data Over Dogma Podcast. And uh, we launched on April 8th, I believe. We have three episodes that are live so far. Uh, and and they're doing wonderfully, getting uh, a lot of great feedback from folks. Uh, the second episode features an interview with uh, Professor Francesca Stavrakopoulou, who was my dissertation supervisor and recently published a book called God and Anatomy that talks about the corporeality, the anthropomorphism of, of God in ancient Southwest Asia and in the Bible. Uh, and we just finished recording an episode uh, that will probably come out in about a month where I, I talked about the divine council and about this passage in the Bible where that scholars think uh, preserves this memory of a time when the God of Israel was defeated by the God of another nation. So uh, lots, of, uh, lots of fun stuff that upset a lot of people. Uh, but uh, yeah, the Data Over Dogma podcast, there's we we're on Twitter. We're on, we're not on Instagram yet. I need to create that account, <laughs> but, um, we, we do video as well. So we post those episodes on, uh, youtube.com forward slash data over dogma. And, uh, 
yeah, we have, what did I say? Three episodes now. And we, we release at midnight every Monday. So weekly podcast, uh, for your Monday commute to try to make it a little less. Perfect. Uh, as we've said in the seven years of doing this podcast, uh, if you're making someone mad, then you're probably doing something right. So let's, let's make more people mad. (laughs) Um, you may mention on our friend Pete and Jared's podcast that I thought was really interesting, where you mentioned that this sort of dualistic way of defining things or assigning roles to very, you know, nuanced subjects, you know, like when we talk about God or even gender roles, um, is really a modern invention or construct. Um, I thought that was really interesting. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, this this was something that I learned as I was going through graduate school and focusing on cognitive linguistics. <clears throat> I have always kind of adopted the conventional wisdom that language has strict meaning and and firm boundaries and that words mean things. And uh, as I got into cognitive linguistics, I, I learned that it's a lot more subjective than we've ever thought. And that the reality is that everybody is creating the meaning from language, uh, whether it's spoken or written or signed, uh, in their own minds. So texts don't have any meaning. We are generating meaning. We're constructing it ourselves in our minds based on our experiences with words. And I don't remember if I shared it on Jared and Pete's podcast, but uh, an example that I frequently bring up is my first week in Oxford. I was on uh, the street called Corn Market Street, which is this foot traffic retail district. I was trying to set up cell phones for my wife and me, and I saw a KFC, and I was like, sweet. And I went in, and I said, hey, do y'all have biscuits? And the guy behind the counter was like, why would we have biscuits? And I was like, oh, that's right. you Biscuits are cookies here. Okay. And then I realized I had absolutely no clue how to describe what I wanted to this poor young man behind the counter. And later on, people were like, oh, you should have said scone. And I was like, I don't think a scone is a biscuit. I wouldn't want to get a scone. Um, but I could not communicate to him what I wanted. And it was because I did not have the necessary experience to be able to communicate to him what item I wanted, I was trying to gesture at without using the word that, in my experience, referred directly to that. And he did not have the experience to, with the word biscuit, to be able to know what I was, what I was coming at. Uh, he had to generate in his mind the meaning from that word. It was not something that I, like, you know, um, put into his mind. It was something that he has to generate himself. And, and that's the same is true of all communication. And, uh, and we use definitions to try to create some consistency and try to make things more um, consistent from person to person. But definitions, particularly of conceptual categories, so categories that only exist in our mind, and you know, a lot of people think that's a pretty limited set of uh, things. It's actually a lot of stuff. Everything from the concept of tomorrow and yesterday and corporations uh, to concepts like chair and life and woman and game and furniture and God and Bible. And these are all conceptual categories that only exist insofar as we agree that they exist. And because all of our experiences with those agreements are different, the concepts are different. And now definitions try to look at all of the different uses of these words and identify 
a feature or a condition or something that is shared by all members of the category. And if we can identify that feature or set of features, we can essentialize the category. We can say this is the essence of the category and we can define it. We can reduce the category down to the shortest list of necessary and sufficient features. And that simply does not work for conceptual categories because that's not how they form, that's not how they're learned, and that's not how they're used. And so it is distorting to use dictionary definitions for most conceptual categories. And unfortunately, however, using those dictionary definitions allows us to draw firm boundaries around categories. And so it aids in the structuring of power and values for people to assert certain definitions. So some examples I use are um, racism. Is some kind of power asymmetry a necessary feature of racism? In other words, does racism only go in one direction from a more powerful group against a less powerful group? Or is that not even relevant at all? If it's not relevant at all, then you can be racist against white people. Uh, and races, and you know, the term just takes on a far different meaning. But if that directionality is required, then racism has a direction and it goes from more powerful to less powerful. And that limits the way the term should be used. And so there is a lot at stake in whether or not you think that feature is a necessary feature of racism. And when you look at the historical usage of the word, the way the term was used all the way up until around the civil rights movement, it always referred to someone with more power exercising some kind of prejudice against someone with less power. And so historically, that power asymmetry was a feature of the usage. And now that's all um, in the civil rights movement. Uh, they start talking about reverse racism, which is kind of an acknowledgement that it has a directionality. But now people have uh, taken to just saying, well, racism can go in any direction. And so that has greater stakes than you know when I talk about uh, concepts associated with the Bible. But... Uh, yeah, when we talk about definitions, when we talk about conceptual categories, usually if somebody's trying to define a conceptual category, it's because they need it to mean something to, because that serves their structuring of power and values. And anytime that someone is trying to structure power and values, I'm suspicious. That doesn't mean that there's never a time when it's right or necessary. I think there are times when it's right and necessary. But I always want to know what the motivations are when somebody is trying to structure power and values. And if those motivations are to oppress, to marginalize, to minoritize, I have a problem with that. And so um, I get on people's cases sometimes on, on social media if I see them trying to do that. Unfortunately, because a lot of people don't know that whole background, when they hear me um, say something about how somebody is structuring power and values, they're like, you can't read their mind. And um, no, I can't read their mind, but I did a whole doctoral dissertation on the cognitive science of religion and the cognitive linguistics, and there are patterns to this, and the scholarship is pretty clear about what is motivating this kind of stuff. So, <laughs> so I, I know what's, what's usually going on under the hood, um, which, yeah, sometimes gets me in trouble uh, when, I'm, when I'm in the wrong audience. Uh, I, I could see that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I'm in the same boat in terms of um, also being 
skeptical, I guess would be the word, um, especially when it comes to the, the Christian history of just sort of ostracizing or excluding or, you know, just outright, um, you know, suppressing, you know, marginalized groups and, and using the Bible as support for that, you know, and, and one that comes to mind is one that you did, um, you know, some, some, uh, classes on recently and that's the lgbtq plus community and i've always had a really hard time with this one because there really aren't a lot of references direct references um in the bible old testament or new and you know the the ones that are arguably a little more a little more explicit uh are the ones in the new testament by paul and even then paul uses sort of this word that's not really found in the common Greek language of the time. And so I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, arsenokite, or uh, according to the Erasmian pronunciation, arsenokoitai, uh, is, it seems like a um, neologism. This is a word that Paul created, uh, drawing from the Greek translation of Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, where arson uh, refers to man, and uh, kite is the plur- would be the plural form of uh, the word for bed. And the it's based on the uh, prohibition on a man uh, uh, sleeping with another man the way he would a woman uh, in Leviticus 18 and 20. And so it most likely refers to that activity and, and is most likely a reference to within, a, uh, within male same-sex intercourse, the insertive or the active role. Uh, in that relationship, uh, because there's a part where Paul also uh, refers to Malachi, writes in the same list as Arsenokite, and Malachi is a, is a word that means something like soft ones, and is frequently a reference to the receptive or the passive partner in an act of male same-sex intercourse. Uh, but there are a lot, of, a lot of unanswered questions regarding precisely who is on that list and the degree of fuzziness um, to the boundaries of that, because uh, there are legitimate questions about if other types of romantic relationships and activities are allowed, or if this is kind of a uh, uh, what's called a merism, where it's only referring to part of the whole, but is kind of a signal to the whole collection. Um, but one of the one of the things that I think is even more important to the f- uh, than the fact that we can't really draw clear lines around what precisely is being addressed is that we don't know precisely why it's being addressed in the way that it's being addressed. And to the the best that we are able to reconstruct the concerns that people had anciently with same-sex intercourse, both male same-sex intercourse and female same-sex intercourse, the best we can do to reconstruct their motivations indicates that they were motivated by uh, social hierarchies of domination and penetration and other ideas about the relationship of sex to social roles, things that are simply irrelevant today that we no longer accept as valid. Uh, When we get into um, 
And I think another an illustration of that for people who may not grasp what I'm saying uh, is in the ancient world, likely the editors and authors of the Bible, definitely at least some authors of rabbinic literature and definitely authors of other ancient Southwest Asian literature, they thought it was inappropriate for a man to be on the bottom during sex because that put the male in a submissive position according to the conventional wisdom and to put a man in a submissive uh, position during sex was to violate that social hierarchy of domination. You were supposed to be in the dominant position. To be in a submissive position is to violate that social hierarchy. And so um, that is not something that we think about today as something most people care about at all. And a lot of people want to rationalize why same-sex intercourse is bad based on you know, there are a lot of reasons that people come up with, but the notion that it violates a social hierarchy and the role that you're supposed to play in that hierarchy, that is not really relevant that much anymore. That was abandoned long ago. And so if we, if we ask people who try to leverage these passages as, as rhetorical weapons against the LGBTQ plus community, you know, why do you think they thought it was wrong? They're going to come up with explanations that had nothing to do with why they really thought it was wrong and the reasons why they really thought it was wrong are not going to matter to people today for the most part. And when we get into Paul, there are other issues with Greco-Roman ideas about sexual desire being uh, part of the base uh, material world. And we needed to transcend that in order to um, elevate ourselves into the the spiritual world of deity. And so Paul thought that uh, sexual desire had to have a tight lid kept on it. And so wanted everybody really to be celibate. But if you couldn't be celibate, go ahead and get married, but only have passionless, dutiful sex and only as frequently as is necessary to keep that tight lid on your urges. In other words, sex should be just be prophylactic. If the pressure is building up, let a little bit of that pressure out and then clamp it back down tight. Um, and so Paul's approach to sexuality is totally alien to most people's ideas today. And they renegotiate it away. And Paul didn't care about procreation. So people who argue, oh, well, that's non-procreative, so that's inappropriate, couldn't have mattered less to Paul. Um, so we renegotiate, we have to negotiate with the Bible and the folks who want to leverage the clobber passages already renegotiate away most of what the Bible's saying about sex. And there's only one real reason that they hold on to this one thing and refuse to negotiate that away. And that is that it is helpful for their structuring of power and values. It ultimately, I would argue, comes down to identity politics and the need to leverage this identity marker to say, if you're one of us, you can't approve of this. And I'm going to bash everybody over the head with it to show how much I don't approve in order to show how much I'm one of us. Um, So costly signaling is another way to refer to doing these things so that other people on the in-group can tell that you're really one of us. And um, (laughs) as as usual, uh, you've gotten me monologuing, um, going into a rant. So I don't know how much of that made sense. (laughs) Yeah, it actually make it makes a lot of sense. Um, and one of the terms that you brought up too that I, that I wanted that I have my list of questions here that my dad, by the way, loves. Uh, my dad is a uh, semi-retired Lutheran ELC Lutheran pastor, and he loved this term and asked me to send it to him. Um, 
when he's trying to explain it to to other folks. But um, this term that you use called renegotiation or renegotiating the text specifically, um, talk about what you mean by that, because I think that's really important. One of the implications of the fact that texts don't have any inherent meaning and the fact that we have to generate the meaning in our own heads and the fact that we can only generate that meaning based on our own experiences with and understandings of the um, agreements about language, one of the implications of that is that meaning is going to be different from mind to mind Every as we generate things. Like the, the, guy, the poor young man at KFC who had no idea why I was getting upset, um, his generation of meaning was different from mine. And so we are already having to, in a sense, negotiate with the text just to try to produce any meaning at all. If we want the text to, um, to generate a meaning, we're bringing our experiences and our understanding of language to bear on the text to generate that meaning. So I refer to that as, as, in a sense, a negotiation with the text. But at the same time, we're also being driven by uh, some intuitive desires. If the text is authoritative or if we believe the text is inspired, if the text is meaningful to us, then our subconscious is... I don't even know if that's a word or subconscious. Our intuitive cognition is going to play a role in how we are able to generate that meaning and the meanings that are going to make the text most meaningful and most useful for us are the ones that are going to bubble to the top. And so subconsciously, we're negotiating with the text as well. Our subconscious mind is trying to figure out what will make this text meaningful or what will take, make this text useful. And the people who composed the biblical text were writing because they wanted these texts to perform certain functions that usually are totally irrelevant to what we're worried about today. And this is one of the reasons I was worried that my account would not be very popular is because if I go around just telling people, oh, that, that really meant this, everybody would be like, I don't care about that. That's boring or that's stupid. I that doesn't have any relevance to today. And, um, you know, sometimes that happens. There are topics I cover that nobody cares about because really I'm saying this is not anything to care about. But for people who believe it is inspired, for people who want to leverage it authoritatively, it needs to mean something useful or meaningful. And so subconsciously, frequently, sometimes consciously, they're going to negotiate with the text and they're going to try to come up with something that makes it meaningful and relevant and useful to us today. So on a few different levels, I think we are negotiating with the text. And the more important a text is within an argument, the more likely people are going to be to be negotiating with it. So the, the clobber passages, for instance, are, have been endlessly renegotiated and all kinds of different readings have been produced for these passages, either to make them more useful as a weapon against the LGBTQ plus community or less useful as a weapon against the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and, and that's one of the difficulties I find that nobody is immune to negotiating with the text. So I myself am having to fight against uh, trying to make it more meaningful or more useful to me. And so it can be hard to tell when I've kind of landed on what the most likely sense was, if that most likely original sense also is meaningful to me or useful to me. And then I'm like, eh, is this really what they wanted it to mean? Or is this just what I would like it to mean? And so that's a, 
that's probably the toughest part of what I do is trying to interrogate my own biases and my own dogmas and try and make sure that what I'm presenting has been um, kind of stripped of as much of my own um, negotiating tactics as possible. And that's, and that's not an easy task. And I'm not perfect at it, so I will get things wrong from time to time. I mean, it does feel pretty Derridian in that Derrida would probably argue that the further removed we are from the original text or even the idea itself, the more difficult it becomes for us to get back to that original intended meaning. Yeah, yeah. And and the more, and this is another thing that I've been worrying about more and more lately, the more I am viewed as an authority and the more authority that my voice takes on, the harder and harder that becomes and the more dangerous it becomes for me as well. This is something that I have a big concern with because if I, if there's a text that is hotly debated and not a lot of people have a good idea what it could mean, if I have an authoritative voice, I can say it means that. And a lot of people are going to believe me. And there may not be anybody in the world who could really mount a strong case against it. But I, I worry that that still may be just me saying, well, they're going to believe me. Uh, the odds that somebody's going to prove me wrong are pretty low. So I'm just going to say what's going to be most helpful for me. So that's something I worry about um, more and more every day uh, because it's, that's always a risk. And, and the more people tell me that they trust me, I, I think the more, the more of a risk there is that I will just punt and uh, punt to my own authority and just say, they're going to believe me, so I can just say this. Yeah, that that is hard. Uh, a lot of my listeners come from that sort of evangelical fundamentalist sort of background and engage in what we have kind of coined um, just this phrase, belief by proxy, you know, just kind of going along with whatever someone tells you, um, you know. And so we've tried to encourage people to do their own research and to think for themselves, but it's so easy coming out of that environment to just latch on to the new quote expert. Um, but so often that just creates a new type of fundamentalism. You're just trading one for the other, uh, just on different sides of the, the polls. Yeah. And that's, and that appeal to authority is, is such a problem, but it's also so easy. It's, it's a lot easier than trying to track it down ourselves. And this is, this is an issue I'm having right now on, on YouTube. Um, I, I posted a video a while ago. There was somebody, I forget the guy's name, Maxwell, Jordan Maxwell, um, making claims of, uh, where he says there, you know, there were 15 major religions before Christianity that all had the, told the exact same story. Uh, Messiah comes to earth and uh, is, uh, kill, is crucified on a cross and raises the third day and had 12 disciples and was baptized and a lot of people believe that. And I made a video where I just stated pretty simply and pretty shortly, there are no data that support this at all. And that's 100% true. And it's, you know, if there are no data, it's not my responsibility to demonstrate the absence of data. Uh, but that was a very short video. And it's had over 100,000 views since I published it. And over 1,000 comments from people saying, well, you need to go research Mithra. Or you don't know anything about Osiris or Horus or Tammuz, or any one of a dozen other things that were all come from the Zeitgeist movie. And every single time I've, I've tried to respond, show me a primary text. Just show me a primary text. And, uh, 
and nobody has been able to do it, but nobody has ceded either. Everybody is um, still saying, no, you're wrong. You're just, you don't know the the data. Uh, you need to educate yourselves. Just go use Google for two minutes. And, and uh, it's because they've taken all these authorities on their word. They see a website that says this and they're like, well, that website's, um, you know, they must know what they're talking about. It's got to be there for a reason. And so they're just convicted by all these people who are saying, believe me, this is the way it is, even though none of them have ever seen a primary text. None of them have ever seen the evidence. And that's all I'm trying to do is say, if you can't, if no one can show you the evidence, if everyone is just requiring that you trust their authority, that's something to be a little concerned about. But it uh, it doesn't show any signs of slowing down anytime soon. But, you yeah. know, it's, it's just, it's bringing more views to my YouTube channel. So I can't be, I'm not mad at it. Yeah, you, you won't be out of a job anytime soon. Speaking of authority, one thing I've wrestled with for a long time is this the, the period of post-crucifixion um, and the birth of Christianity sort of coming out of that. So we have all of these first-person witnesses in the disciples who are still alive and operating in the area um, and active. And yet Paul, who never actually met Jesus, comes to the forefront as the main voice of this new Christian movement. And the history nerd in me just doesn't understand, like, what what are the disciples up to? And like, why aren't they the the, the voices of this, this movement having been there to witness what Jesus actually said and, and things that were, you know, important to him and, you know, that sort of thing? I, I think that's a, that's a question people have been trying to answer for a long time. And, and I don't know, I can, I can imagine it was probably incredibly frustrating for James and for Peter and for others to be like, why is Paul getting all the attention? Um, particularly when Paul is going in a completely different direction and is lecturing them uh, about what they're doing wrong. And uh, I, I have to imagine that the fact that Paul was writing letters to these churches in order to try to curate uh, the administration of the churches, I, I imagine that that played a role, that the fact that those letters could then be further transmitted and they took on authority by the, uh, by the middle of the second century uh, with Second Peter. We've got Paul's letters being referred to as scripture. Uh, the gospels probably were, uh, were thought of as scripture around the same time, but I imagine that's got to play a role. Those letters stuck around, and so Paul's influence stuck around, even if <laughs> the nature of that influence was constantly being renegotiated. Uh, but yeah, the there's kind of a cacophony when you let all of these different authors stand on their own. Like James 2, I think, is directly rejecting Paul's idea about the relationship of faith to works. Uh, and you've got all, and then you've got the gospels and you've got like the book of revelation. And these texts are saying many different things and in, in many ways, just totally contradicting each other. And we bring them all together. And it, if you let the authors operate on their own terms, they just totally disagree with each other, but that's not what happened. They had to try to consolidate it all and harmonize it all. And unfortunately, Paul kind of rises to the top and Paul's ideas become the interpretive lens for looking at the rest of stuff. And particularly once we get to the Reformation, that's where I think, that's where I think Paul um, really takes over. And uh, unfortunately, that silences all the other voices from early Christianity. 
And so I, I don't know that we've, we're able to reconstruct enough of that early history to say, for this reason, Paul was, uh, was the one who won out. But I have to imagine that the fact that those letters were in circulation was, was a big part of it. Yeah, I think it would be really interesting and fascinating to know some of the other perspectives of some of the first-hand witnesses, you know, like the disciples and the people that knew Jesus, and to be able to differentiate kind of between the approaches or, or kind of the ideas of how they thought the church should move forward um, after the death of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Un- unfortunately, uh, whatever they shared about those perspectives probably didn't get written down, or if it did, got lost pretty soon after. And so those perspectives um, just vanished. And I, and I don't know that we'll ever be able to, to reconstruct them. Hopefully someday we'll find something, but for the time being, yeah, it, it seems that the the one whose, uh, whose texts were still around when everybody else was gone um, was the victor. One of the other topics that you've covered lately is another fascinating one for me, um, are the claims within the Bible that Jesus is literally God. And from a historical perspective, the evidence we have to lean on are these references within the Gospels and primarily the Gospel of John. Uh, talk about that a little bit. So in the uh, the book I published a bit ago based on my doctoral dissertation, Adonai's Divine Images, I make a case that some of the um, mediatory figures in early Israel and within early Judaism are adopting the logic of divine images in order to try to argue that these figures are making God's presence manifest. So that's the entire point of a divine image, an idol. Uh, People think it's just an object of worship. It did far more than that. It did whatever you needed the God to do by making the God present. It presenced the deity. And whether that meant you were asking it something or just wanted to feel that presence or needed to worship it, it could function in a lot of different ways. And as you have... uh, cultic authorities kind of pushing divine images away, they're not entirely abandoned, they're just renegotiated. And we look to other things to provide that sense of presence. One of those is the angel of the Lord, the Malach Adonai, who is identified with the deity, but also distinguished from the deity in different places in the Hebrew Bible. And this is exactly how divine images are treated. Idols in Mesopotamia, in Egypt, in Anatolia, and elsewhere, they are spoken of as if they are both distinct from the deity and also the deity themselves. And you, the text of the law is operating like that to some degree as well. You have Joseph, or Joseph. Uh, you have Moses and you have Joshua who are instructed to write the words of the law on a standing stone. And a standing stone was a divine image. And so they're kind of overlaying the old traditional divine image with the text of the law. And I, I even argue that the, um, the tablets of the law are just miniature standing stones with the text of the law written on them. And, you know, what did people do with... Uh, in the ancient world, they used a lot of um, shrine models and they put a little miniature divine image inside. <coughs> the Ark of the Covenant functions an awful lot like a shrine model and then has little mini uh, uh, standing stones put inside them. So the text of the law is kind of becoming a species of, of divine image. <coughs> and then within Greco-Roman period Judaism, we have this figure 
uh, who's known as the son of man. Uh, in other traditions, it's kind of an angelic figure, whether it's Metatron or Yahuwah or another figure like that. We have this sentient, uh, living, breathing, walking, talking entity who's doing exactly what divine images do, bringing the divine presence to us. Uh, and and that's uh, the way that they're kind of enlivened, they're endowed with the divine presence is through the possession of the divine name. And this is how divine images work. You wrote the name on the image and the angel of the Lord has the divine name. As uh, Exodus says, um, I'm sending an angel before you to guard you on the way. Uh, don't disobey him. Don't rebel against him. He doesn't have to forgive your sins because my name is in him. And Yahweh in the apocalypse of Abraham that is roughly contemporary with the New Testament tells Abraham, you know, I'm able to do all these things that God does because I am, uh, he has put his two names together in me or put his names together in me. Uh, Metatron, there's a, there's a rabbinic text where a heretic says, why does this text say, come up to Adonai? Shouldn't that say, come up to me since it's Adonai speaking? And the rabbi says, no, that's a reference to Metatron because Metatron has Adonai's name, and then they quote that passage in Exodus. And so Jesus is kind of consolidating a lot of these different traditions within himself. You have the Son of Man tradition, you have the Angel of the Lord tradition, uh, you have Son of God traditions that are kind of adopted from Greco-Roman ideologies. And so Jesus is doing the same thing. Jesus is functioning like a divine image. They are not the deity, but they're also the deity so that God's presence and power can be among us when God cannot be among us. And so in the earliest layers of the New Testament, that's what's going on. But as you get to the later layers, as you get to the second century writings and John, you get a more philosophical approach. Uh, John is adopting some stoic uh, ideas, um, maybe even some platonic ideas Paul is certainly versed in philosophy, uh, and then the apologists are very much trying to philosophize the gospel to make it palatable to the Greco-Roman intelligentsia. And as you get that, and the New Testament is coming together into a corpus, you get a concern to kind of harmonize it all, standardize it all. We need a, a philosophical framework for understanding why the texts are saying that Jesus both isn't God, but also somehow is God. And that's where you get the development of this concept of the Trinity. Uh, and so I would argue that the New Testament is treating Jesus like a divine image and is adopting this early Jewish idea of intermediatory figures who function much like divine images. And they rationalize it in different ways. Mark talks about kind of an adoptionist Christology, and John talks about an emanationist theology. And so if they have to account for how this is going on, they've got these different ways. And it's not until the second century that this philosophical idea of Jesus as God themselves starts to develop. So I think there's a pivoting the very last part of the New Testament, the the very latest text written in the New Testament, there's a pivoting towards kind of accepting Jesus as, you know, we with the divine image, it's both uh, Jesus, uh, the thing is not the God and the thing is the God. And then by the end, you kind of have the philosophical argument that, okay, we just need to talk of it as the thing is God. 
And so they kind of settle on that on that side of the argument. I'm working on a book on this, uh, so I'm I will have, I will have an explanation that makes a lot more sense uh, before too long. But uh, um, hopefully that rant was somewhat coherent. I think a, a fun way to end this would be to talk about the debate on which biblical translation is the best. And obviously that's a tricky one to answer because you know there's different approaches to translating the Bible. Did the translator attempt to find the closest like like for like word in English, or did they try to, um, can, you know, do the best job they could of conveying the overall meaning of the passage. Um, so as, as best you can, what would you recommend in terms of biblical translations? Yeah, I, I think there's, it's, it's a difficult question to answer. One of the things I'll start off by saying is that, uh, the best translation is is the one that's going to um, allow you to do what you want the text to do. People approach the Bible for lots of different reasons, so it can serve different functions, and some translations serve certain functions better than others. But if the question is, what's most faithful to the original, there's, there's a balancing act that's going on in translation, where this text is a foreign text, it's an alien text, and it relies on a lot of sociocultural um, concepts and um, things that we don't have direct access to. And so there's a degree to which the translation is um, <clears throat> domesticating this this foreign text, is bringing it to the reader in order to make it easier to understand. But the more that text is adapted to the reader's society, the less and less of the source culture and society and meaning is going to be able to come through. And so it gets fuzzier and fuzzier the more you bring it to the reader, whereas some translations expect the reader to do the work to try to get closer to the source culture, better understand the imagery, better understand the poetry, maybe even better understand the language. So the more you require the reader move toward the source text, the more of that original culture and meaning and everything is going to be able to come through, but the more work they have to do. Um, and so every translation is trying to strike a balance. How much are we going to bring the text over and fuzzy it up and make it less clear versus how much are we going to demand the reader do the work to try to access the fuzzy boundaries? Um, and I think right now that some of the translations that do the best, um, the NRSV, if you're looking for both a Hebrew Bible and a New Testament, I think the NRSV and particularly the updated edition is probably the most scholarly, but it's far from perfect. Um, in a lot of ways, it is still uh, imposing Christological lenses on the Hebrew Bible. In a lot of ways, it is still presupposing some evangelical ideologies. And so there are ways that it is moving the text closer to one um, set of uh, one audience, one readership than uh, to others. And so it's not perfect. Uh, just the Old Testament by itself, I would say either the JPS, uh, Tanakh, and particularly the um, uh, the I uh, forget exactly what it's called, the Torah commentary series. So the first five books of, of the Tanakh uh, in the JPS translation, that commentary series is wonderful and the translation is very good. Uh, I think even better though, in terms of just the translation might be Robert Alter's recent translation of the Hebrew Bible, which is very, very good. I have my disagreements with Alter on, on, uh, in some places, but in terms of a Hebrew Bible, I think that is um, a very, very good one. 
The New Testament's a little trickier. There haven't been very many translations of the whole New Testament. Um, David Bentley Hart's translation, I find a little idiosyncratic. I don't know that that's going to be easy for most people to really um, sink their teeth into, even though I do think there is absolutely something valuable to him trying to recreate the uh, the experience that the original reader would try to have by making awkward and stilted Greek, awkward and stilted English, and the sophisticated and polished Greek, sophisticated and polished English. So there's something to that, but I don't think it's uh, entirely accessible, and there are not a ton of, of explanatory notes. Um, for just the Gospels, Sarah Rudin is a translator who published a, a, an interesting translation of just the Gospels. Now, and she uses transliteration for the names of people and places, which sometimes can look a little awkward for people who are not used to transliteration, but I think the, the translation is good. I think those are the ones I would, um, I would name. Oh, um, and the editions that I like when it comes to the NRSV, there are two editions. Yeah. Two editions that I would recommend, uh, for the whole, the Hebrew Bible and the, the new Testament, the new Oxford annotated Bible. And particularly, I think there's a fifth edition. Uh, that's the one that I would usually recommend. And then there's also the Jewish annotated new Testament, which is also based on the NRSV. However, the editors are Jewish and they're providing explanatory notes that contextualize the New Testament, the things Jesus is saying, the the parables, they're contextualizing this within uh, as close as we can get to a first century Jewish culture. So I think that would be an eye-opening New Testament for a lot of readers. Thank you so much. This has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for coming on today. Um, Thank you for letting me rant for a while. Anytime. My uh, family doesn't let me do it as much, so... <laughs> And, and I'm sure the listeners are eating this up. So go check out Dan's new podcast. Uh, it, few, like he said, a few episodes out now, but there'll be more uh, by the time this podcast releases his book. Um, you know, check out his online courses. Um, all of that information will be in the show notes. So check it out. And thanks again. Thank you. I appreciate your time.
face must look like yours A face like a Tina An Ahmed or Mildred A Russ and his husband Gus and their children A face like a Kim A Ted or Tyrone A Lucy born with an extra chromosome A Pablo with legs he can't move by himself A girl born a Daniel who now is Danielle A Bill H and E, even white guys named Todd If you have a heartbeat you are the face Time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.